Our scripture this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, and Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Hear God's word to us. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I guess I'd never turn myself off, and I turned it off there. Okay, so hey, it's great to be back from the, the Chicago Marathon last Sunday, um, running with uh, two other campus pastors, um, our campus pastor out in Olathe, uh, Reed Capel, and our campus pastor at Shawnee Mission, uh, the Shawnee Mission campus, Tim Spanberg, running together with him, specifically Tim, um, in honor and, and raising awareness for muscular dystrophy. Um, as many, as some, as you, some of you may know, Tim's son, Isaiah, his oldest son, um, has Deshane's uh, muscular dystrophy. And so raising awareness and funds um, to continue to do the research there necessary. So it's good to be back um, with everybody this week and, uh, and then also just be in prayer for uh, my family. Uh, this Wednesday is the, and then this is amazing in the modern age, uh, this Wednesday is the schedule for the C-section of our third son, our third kid. Yeah, third, yeah. Um, woo, all these details. Um, <laughs> This Wednesday, Allie knows them really well. She's intimately involved in what's happening there. Um, so be in prayer for us during that time. But excited to open God's word uh, for us this morning and to hear God's brilliant wisdom, timeless as it always is. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much for your word. Guide us in grace. You lavish upon us um, way more than we ever deserve. And you want, you want for us way more than we often want for ourselves. So much good. And so, God, we do pray that you would guide us in wisdom, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, bringing about continued transformation to walk in this wise life with you as you've laid it out before us in your word. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was curious if some of you maybe have heard this story. Have you ever heard of the story of Liz Jensen? Um, Liz Jensen, uh, she's in many ways a normal person. She was going into um, a wedding dress shop, getting ready for her big day, her, her wedding, and she pulled out her credit card to pay for her wedding dress, and then the cashier said, hey, no need. And, you know, when you're about to pay for something you expect to pay for and somebody says, put your credit card away, you start to get a little scary, especially when the wedding is not too far away. And she said, well, why? I've got to pay for the wedding dress. She said, no, uh, another would-be bride who longs to remain anonymous wanted to pay for your dress in full. You know, of course, tears come down Liz Jensen's face. I, I want to tell another story. Another story is um, it happened. It was a snowy day in Colorado Springs, and uh, there was a homeless gentleman seeing all these cars getting stuck in the unexpected slush. And so what he did is he 
went out there in the midst of this cold, asking for nothing, wanting nothing, but helped different cars get out of the slush, pushing, moving, doing whatever he could to help all these different drivers to get back on the road and get to where they needed to go. The news was, you know, rife with all the different stories about this gentleman. One viewer, uh, Sarah Webster, saw the story, saw this gentleman, and set up a GoFundMe page um, and raised enough money to pay for this gentleman to have multiple months of rent for an apartment and to also pay for some job certification training for the job he'd been wanting to have. It was, it was a beautiful story. One more, one more story, okay, and it's one of my favorites, of Nicole Bullerman. She's a teacher um, in Massachusetts, Mass, Massachusetts, 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 um, and she entered into an essay competition. There was an essay competition going on, and she's like, well, okay, maybe I'll give it a try. She writes this essay, and she wins. And not only does she win, she wins $150,000. And not only does she win $150,000, she gives all of it to her school. Don't we love those kinds of stories? Like, doesn't that just make your body warm and your heart squishy? Like, I just, <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. We can listen to it day in and day out. And yet, the reality is we can hear those stories again and again and again. And then go back to our own budgets, go back to our own spending habits, and be completely unchanged. We can hear and be moved by stories of radical generosity and say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that marvelous? Man, I wish there were more stories like that in the world. And yet we go back to our own spending habits and so often do nothing. 2.5%. Interesting percentage, okay? 2.5%, fun fact, is what American Christians give out of their annual budget. That is the average percentage. 2.5% of their income is spent on giving. The other 97.5% is spent on spending, spent on spending, right, or saving or so on, which you save, of course, to spend on yourself later. So uh, this is an alarming percentage. And what's even more alarming about this percentage just to give us some perspective, if you go back to the Great Depression, we couldn't afford to buy bread, right, during the Great Depression. I mean, this is a very difficult time. Christians, American Christians, were giving a higher percentage during the Great Depression than they are today. That shakes me. <laughs> and there's one uh, particular sociologist, Christian Smith, who was really astounded by these percentages. And so he started bringing together some of the facts and figures. And in his book, Passing the Plate, um, he writes this, which is really alarming. He says, why is it that American Christians give away so relatively little of their money? Contemporary American Christians are among the wealthiest of their faith in the world today and probably the most affluent single group of Christians in 2,000 years of church history. They have a lot of money. Most American Christians also profess to want to see the gospel preached in the world, the hungry fed, the church strengthened, and the poor raised to enjoy lives of dignity and hope, all tasks that normally require money. And yet, despite all of this, American Christians give away relatively little money to religious and other purposes. A sizable number of Christians give no money, literally nothing. Most of the rest of American Christians give little sums of money. Only a small percentage of American Christians give money generously in proportion to what their churches call them to give. All of the evidence points to the same conclusion. 
When it comes to sharing their money, most contemporary American Christians are remarkably ungenerous. Why? And listen, I, I don't want, I know there's a lot of baggage around this topic. Uh, Jeff and Becky both mentioned that. It's, it's, it's highly uncomfortable. But my goal this morning is not in any way, shape, or form to make anyone feel guilty. That's not a good goal. Honestly, that's not it. But it does raise a really important question as to what are we missing? What are we missing? I don't think we're missing more information. We have more information about needs uh, than ever. I actually don't think we need a more zealous exhortation to give what is right. I actually think what we need more than anything is wisdom. Because often that's usually the line we use to not give. And it's often because we misunderstand wisdom. Hook, line, and sinker, as my grandpa would say. So what we're going to do and what we've been doing over the past couple weeks is taking a step back and trying to restart smart. To restart smart, because what we're doing basically with everything isn't working for the world and it isn't working for us. We need wisdom. Now, wisdom we saw over the past couple weeks um, isn't just these isolated principles that help in a cause and effect relationship, but it's much more the skillful art of living in God's world. It's a different understanding on what the makeup of the world in which we find ourselves is. And what we're going to seek to do today is to take a step back and to learn how to make the most of everything we own. How to make the most of everything we own. How do we make the most of our talents? How do we make the most of our time? How do we make the most of our finances, our stuff that sometimes sits in storage units for a long time? How do we make the most of our gifts and our talents? And I actually think we could talk about that stuff for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks. There's so many good practical tips out there. But since we're not going to do that, if there's one thing we could talk about that actually impacts and shapes the way we're actually managing everything we have, if, if we can actually navigate one area of our lives that shapes every area of our lives, it's maybe one of the greatest litmus tests and one of the greatest training grounds for our hearts in generosity. It's in the area of money, moolah, cash, dollar bills, you know, like Benjamins, like what, whatever slang you want to use for it. And listen, I know as soon as, as I say that, you know, that word money, or you see dollar signs, it's like a trigger that causes us to shut down. And I want you to wait a second, okay? And hear me out. Let me say three quick things before we even jump into the text. One, here's the first thing. If you've done even a cursory reading of Proverbs or even just a smattering of, you know, surveying of the scriptures, you, you would be surprised <laughs> that we're only spending one week on money because Solomon talks about money all over the place. So that's the first thing. Two, I know this is uncomfortable, but this is such a huge component to our lives. I would be a bad pastor. We would be a really bad church if we didn't talk about what God's Word has to say about something that's extraordinarily touchy, our finances. And then third, and this is why I'm really excited to talk about this today, to talk about something your mama said you should never talk about at the dinner table and it's because wisdom is pleading with you and I. It is like crying out to you and I and, and wants us so deeply to believe that a generous life will never leave you empty. A generous life will never be 
empty. It's the richest way to live. It's the life and life abundant that God is promising us to lean into. Generosity is crucial. And so today we're going to jump into the text because this is such a difficult conversation to kind of grasp. We're going to get and and lean into God's timeless wisdom as portrayed here in Proverbs and affirmed throughout Scripture, okay? Scripture is not contradicting itself in any way, shape, or form. It's found in Proverbs and affirmed in other passages as well. We're going to get a reorientation as to what money is. Then we're going to see a redirection on how we actually leverage what money actually is to God's glory. And then we're going to get a reimagination, okay, as to what's even possible when we lean into these first two. So reorient, a redirect, and a reimagine, okay? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16, where we're going to see a reorientation right out the gate here as to what money is. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16. And the text reads, The wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. Now, right here, we come to see what money isn't. Money isn't essentially good, nor is it essentially evil. Instead, what we come to see is that money is power. Money is power. And when the same amount of money is put in the hand of a righteous person, someone who's wise, it actually leads to life. When the same amount of money is put in the hands of a wicked person, someone who's foolish, it leads to death. Money is unbelievably powerful. Unbelievably powerful. How so? We're going to look at four different ways real quick as we kind of reorient our mind around money and its power. First, money is power to blind. It can totally close our sights as to what is reality. I mean, for example, think about this. Who here thinks they're greedy? Oh, well, well, look at you. Way to go. That was very, we, we all are a little bit, right? So way to go. That really shocked me. That was good. I'm proud of you guys. Um, you get more points somewhere from someone. Um, how many of us are aware of the injustices that make our comfortable lives affordable? Not too many. Some. The, the thing about money and its power is it so easily blinds us, and it can so easily fool us into thinking that it is the key catalyst to security or safety. It's the key catalyst to security or safety. This is the narrative. If there is no God, right? If there is no God, we have come out of, uh, you know, we've come into existence purely by chance. The only way to protect yourselves from the chaos around is to what? Build up walls of safety through financial means. Money is power to blind, and it can make us think we're safe when we're not. We see this in Proverbs 18, verse 11. Proverbs 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. In his imagination. He sees his wealth as like this impermeable wall that nothing can get to him. Nothing can take his life down. And it's blinded him because, of course, things can take you down even when you're wealthy. But it can breed a false sense of security. Money is power to blind. But it's also power to bless. How many of you have experienced when somebody was just above and beyond generous to you, right? 
And, and you think, man, I'm so glad they had capacity to bless me in that way. That was, that was huge. And one of the greatest gifts I have as a pastor is I get to come alongside of individuals, folks who come into our church, who are a part of our church, who have hit really difficult times due to unforeseen circumstances, sometimes, you know, within their control and some without. And we're able to come because of your generosity and benevolence to come alongside and help pay for some bills or in crisis to help pay for some counseling. It's one of the greatest gifts, you know, I get to have as a pastor is to come alongside of folks in that way. And especially when it comes to coming alongside of the vulnerable in our city, whether it be through your generosity that goes to really important institutions through the church, out in the city like Mission Adelante or Crossroads Charter Schools, or even at the campuses across the city, whether it be caring for immigrants, single parents, or the homeless, you name it. There's a, a great gift we have that through generosity we have now the power to bless those who are in deep financial need. And actually, Proverbs is really strong on this language. If you go to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, we read, whoever is generous to the poor lends, gives a loan to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. What an astounding statement. When, when you actually are, your generosity goes to help those who are disenfranchised or vulnerable or financially uh, uh, disenfranchised. It's like giving God a loan. And do you think that God's good for his loans? All right, so those are two ways in which, two ways in which money is power. Let's look at two more. Money is not only power to blind and power to bless, it is power and has power to enslave, to enslave. How many of you have thought, man, if I just had a little bit more money? The older we get, usually, you know, our income uh, is more like a bell curve in life. You know, you, when you, you, you reach the height of your income potential and then as you hit retirement, it starts to go down a little bit. But there's a point where you, the older we get, the more money we earn and si simultaneously, it's a really interesting fact, the more our lifestyle starts to creep more often than not, such that the more money we've earned is barely enough just to sustain the lifestyle that we absolutely need. Oh, if we just had a little bit more, man, I, I don't know if we're going to have enough. How many of your sleepless nights have been spent over worrying for money? How many of your arguments with spouses, friends, colleagues has been around money? Money is still one of the top three, top five key elements that leads to divorce and marriage because of the lack of agreement, frustration, worry around money. Families, communities, and society at large have been torn apart by injustice and financial oppression again and again. You can look individually by the inordinate interest that is caused by payday loans or the generational effects of redlining on certain populations within the United States. Greed, it locks into our hearts and enslaves us and yanks us around with this incessant lust for more. So money has the power to enslave. But money also has the power to free. Whenever 
you let generosity loose through you, it frees, it has the capacity to free a whole city. I love that if you go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, Proverbs 11, verse 10, we read, when it goes well with the righteous, the city, what? Rejoices. Why? Because when the righteous, when the wise are like doing really well, what do they do with what what they've really been entrusted? They start making the city, helping it flourish. Wise people get this, that money is power. And oh man, it can be power to blind or it can be power to bless. It can be power to enslave or it can be power to, to free, to be a catalyst for really good work well done across the city for the common good of the city. Wise people know the power of money. And that it can lead to death or it can lead to life. And we need to have this reorientation, not to worship money, but not to demonize money, but to see it as a power, a cautious one to be sure, that can be leveraged in one of two directions. And every single person in here has that capacity to do so. So first, we have this reorientation towards money. But the wise don't just understand money better, they redirect it better. And specifically, when you look across the wisdom of Proverbs, we see the wise, that wise people always find a way to give. That is one of the greatest hallmarks when it comes to the power of money in the wise person's hands is they always find a way to give. Why? Because remember, wisdom is the skillful art of living in God's world. And the wise, they get the design of God's world, that it was actually created out of the overflow of a very generous God. And the wise people understand that at the core of the design of the universe is an extraordinary paradox. Let's look at that paradox together. It was part of the passage that was read for us. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25, we read, One gives freely, yet yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Right here we find the paradox. This paradox of generosity that in giving we receive, that in holding close, that living with tight fists, we will lose it all. And isn't this what Jesus modeled for us and also spoke? If you go to Acts chapter 20, verse 35, what does he say? It is more blessed to give than receive. And, and And it seems so clear, it seems so obvious, but it's really difficult to grasp and to actually shape our lives around this. Now, I want to be really clear what I'm not promoting this morning, what Proverbs isn't promoting this morning, what Jesus would never endorse ever this morning or otherwise is what's known as the prosperity gospel, that if you write a really big check today, you should go look in your mailbox tomorrow because it'll be bigger even still, right? No. The reason... You give money isn't to get money or you're just revealing an idol. If the whole goal is to get, quote unquote, more financially wealthy, period, you've missed it. Instead, what Jesus promises, what wisdom is encouraging us to embrace, what Proverbs is promoting is that generosity leads to a rich life, not necessarily a life of riches. 
And this rich life that Jesus comes to bring, this rich life that we long to have, is really what we want money for in the first place so that we can put a down payment on it and somehow purchase it under our own control, but we can't. Once again, that's the paradox of generosity, is that in giving, we actually receive. And in holding close and trying to do it for ourselves, we actually lose. And the wise, they get this and deeply understand that a generous life will never be empty. And sociology actually backs this up. Sociology backs this up. Um, if you do, there's been a lot of studies out there as to who are quote unquote the happiest people, you know, across various different uh, demographics and even nations. Who are the happiest people? Surprising statistic, the happiest people the world over aren't the people by norm with the biggest bank accounts and the mo most robust financial, uh, you know, market opportunities. Instead, the happiest people again and again are the people who are marked by generosity, the people who consistently find ways to give. One way uh, that this research has kind of been collected together and organized that shows the impact of generosity uh, on the quality of life is in a book called The Paradox of Generosity, Receiving or Giving We, giving we Receive, Grasping We Lose. And right there, right at the very beginning in the introduction, sometimes I hesitate quoting introductions because people think, is that all I read? Um, you be the judge. Now, so here, here's how it starts. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. He's a sociologist, okay? By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. And letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching. It is a sociological fact. In other words, you can take that to the bank. Trust the paradox of generosity that is intimately interconnected to a shape of the world where a generous God created a world where intertwined in its very fabric is the paradox of generosity versus an evolutionary framework without any God over its stage where chaos is constantly on the loose and the only way to protect yourself is to hoard. Totally different ways of seeing the world. And the paradox of generosity requires significant trust and a completely different way of seeing the world. And the wise get it. The skillful art of living in God's world. And this is what has always been at the core of what it means to be human and to know the richest of life. So if wisdom is pointing us this way, if Proverbs is actually encouraging us, if Jesus actually says it is more blessed to give than receive, and the happiest people aren't the people with the biggest bank accounts or the biggest boats, you know, I don't know why, you know, there's all these arguments in two happiest days of a boat owner's life. Have you heard this joke? The day you buy it and the, and the day you sell it, right? Um, lesson to be learned there, folks, right? Um, if you're a boat salesman, I'm sorry. I just ruined your vocation. We believe all work matters, yada, yada. Now, um, I'm kidding, kidding. No, but in all seriousness, if all of this is true, if it's more blessed to give than to receive, I really want to get practical here. And this is a difficult reality because, and, and very challenging because everybody in this room is in a slightly different space. Some folks in here aren't giving anything. 
And others of you are giving extraordinarily sacrificially in a lot of ways to a lot of institutions and so on. And so it, it, it has its challenges, but I want to take a stab at what wisdom is calling us to in this wise life, which is a generous life. And here's the first thing we come to see about wise folks from the wisdom of Proverbs is that wise people always find a way to give first. They have their priorities straight. They give first, save second, spend third, or pay off debt third, or go to the movies third, you know, whatever it, it might be. Does that, is that the way your budget looks? Now, where does this come from in Scripture, right? That's a question we should be asking. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 3. It's also one of the passages that was read for us this morning, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you want your vats to be bursting with wine, um, listen up. Uh, woo! Um, now, once again, this isn't the prosperity gospel. You don't give to get. Um, it's just talking about a broader, rich life. And these are deep, real, um, not abstract, but touchy, earthy uh, ex examples of the rich life, okay? And what we find right here in this passage um, is that you, you, you're called to trust the paradox, and you will experience a great richness of life. Now, I know some can ask, okay, well, what if I, what if I don't have enough? This framing of first fruits is really important. Think about the first audience who heard this. This wasn't written to a 21st century culture, and yet it applies to a 21st century culture. This was written to a primarily agricultural society where they lived and died based upon the results of their harvest. Their first fruits is exactly like it sounds, the very first thing that is produced from the labor of their hands. So they give the very first, take the very, and it's not talking about like, it's talking about generosity. Otherwise, why would you talk about first fruits and set it apart from everything else? So first fruits, taking the very first part of the harvest and giving a tithe and banking on the paradox of generosity that the other 90% is going to be enough. This is the way farmers lived. And if they didn't have enough, their kids didn't eat. And God is saying right here, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Look, the harvest is never guaranteed, but the wise, they budget it first, they plan for it, they stick out to it, they sacrifice for it. Why? Not, and listen, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on out there, but, but the reason that, that the wise do it is because they know a generous life will never be empty. They deeply believe the paradox of generosity that's unearthed when we understand the wisdom that God has provided for us in his word and the way that he's designed the world. Some of the most generous people are the people who have so little. Some of my greatest heroes when it comes to generosity aren't the people who have millions upon millions upon millions. It's the people, like Jesus said, the widow when she gave her might, right? Look at her. She should have saved that. She should have invested it. She went first fruits, and Jesus celebrated her. It's truly astounding who Jesus celebrates when it comes to this first fruits giving. And I know for some, this can feel impossible when you start thinking about your categories and the commitments you've made in your own budget and so on, or some of you are thinking, budget? 
Uh, hopefully not too many people are thinking that. But I know that's reality. I know that's the reality. I know for, like I said, Allie and I, we went through Financial Peace University last year um, from Dave Ramsey, a really, really great um, program that helps you save like no one else, not so that you can then live in luxury like no one else, but so that you can give like no one else. Because Dave understands the biblical methodology here and the design of God's world of the paradox of generosity. This is why we navigate finances with such rigor. And this is also why when you spend all of your money exclusively on yourself, it's not only, I'll say it, it's not only dumb because you're missing the paradox of generosity, it's also evil because it isn't yours in the first place. It isn't yours in the first place. So first, so we come to see that wise people always make a way to give first. But we can't stop there. People who learn to lean into this paradox of generosity are always asking and always understanding that wise people always find a way to give more. Now, as a pastor, I get a lot of people who ask me, okay, Gabe, now just give me a percentage. What do we need to give? And I think that's the wrong starting point. It's, it's not a bad question, but it's just not the best question when it comes to a starting point. Instead, the best starting point is to understand that God owns it all. It's not like part of this is mine and part of this is God's. The, the, the starting point is to understand that God owns it all. This is what we see in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of it is His. So how much, how much do, should, should we seek to honor God with, with this wealth? All of it. Because everything you have is on loan from God. Everything you have is on loan from God because it's His. And so we start from a different Starting point, rather than asking, okay, what's the minimum, we start with understanding that it's all his, and what does it look like to honor him with everything? And the minimum, here's what's helpful for the minimum. The minimum is like a training ground for generosity. It's where you actually learn to trust the paradox of generosity. It's where you start to say, okay, I'm not going to be left out there without a secure uh, station. And actually that God's not going to turn his back on me. But actually this is the way in which he's actually called me to live as I seek to follow Jesus. It's the training ground. And we as a church, we do believe that Scripture teaches that the baseline of obedience is a 10%. And I know that sounds crazy to some folks. It sounded crazy to me at first. It sounded crazy to Jeff at first. And then we tried it. And here we are. Now, I know some folks are going to also say, well, but Gabe, that's the Old Testament law. We're under grace, baby. We're under grace. Um, Yes, 100%. 100% true. Look anywhere in the New Testament that when we've now experienced grace upon grace through the gospel, that now the bar is quote-unquote lowered on how we seek to follow God and image Him. You won't find it anywhere. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's like the bar keeps getting raised. Beauty is we have the Spirit that consistently is caring for us and guiding us in the life we long to live rather than just looking for the rules to follow, but the kinds of people who overflow with generosity made in the image of God, seeking to be generous like Him because that's where we find our greatest delight and joy. So let's not get hung up there. And looking at the minimum. But now let grace spur you on to an even more radical empowered generosity through the power of the Spirit by the grace of the gospel. So what are some, a couple diagnostic questions, right, to help us and where we sit in broader generosity? If we often are blinded by it and enslaved by it, 
let's ask some questions like a good doctor would to see if you happen to have some of the symptoms, okay? Um, here's one question. Are there things, when we're trying to find, discover is generosity kind of a part of my life or not, are there things in your life that you want or want to do that you don't do because you're generous? If not, you might not be generous. Chances are good you won't be generous. Okay, so that's question one. Question two, think about your income potential. And I want you to compare that to someone who isn't following Jesus. And I don't say that in any way, shape, or form with judgmental error, okay? But your life should be radically reoriented and redirected because you're following someone, Jesus. And if you look at someone who is not a Christian and their income potential, and you look at your life and your income potential, and if your lives don't, your lives don't look really that much different in terms of the materials that you have and so on, chances are you're not generous. A third question to keep diagnosing our hearts because this is so blinding. Add up all those extras in life. Um, by that I mean... A lot of those creature comforts, like those meals out versus making a meal at home, entertainment, going on a vacation, um, the comfort capacity, like you could have got this, but you got this. You know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Like there's all those things in each of our lives where we kind of went above and beyond what was necessary to what was delightful. And those aren't bad, but when you start to add up all of that, compare that to what we now call expendable income, right? What what an interesting phrase. That's a, that's, that is a sign of wealth, folks. Um, compare all of that to what you give away. What's the gap? What's the comparison? That'll give you a litmus test as to where you are with generosity. And then one more question. Um, maybe you're already given a lot. And I have to say, as a pastor here at Christ Community, you all are just phenomenal. Um, you really are very generous folks, and so I just want to say thank you. Um, alongside of that, generosity isn't a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. And that the truly wise folks who deeply lean into the paradox of generosity aren't saying, I've given enough. They're always asking the question, how can I give more? You know, it's like, have you ever seen the movie Schindler's List when he gets to the end? And he gave up all of these things to help get a certain amount of Jews out of Germany. And then when he gets to the end, what does he say? I could have given up this. I could, I could have done this. And I could, have, I could have helped more get across the line. I could have. The wise always, always, always are looking for opportunities to give more. Because they know and deeply believe a generous life will never be empty. Now, I know... For some of you, this can feel really overwhelming because you're not being obedient to Scripture here. And I use the language obedience. You're not being obedient, and it may feel impossible. Um, But listen, there's grace. And I hope for your sake, you don't walk out of this place this morning and, and not change anything about your habits. I hope for your sake that that actually, this is a catalyst for change. And here's a helpful way to just jumpstart that change. Pick a percentage. We said 10% is the baseline of obedience. Some of you are like, I'm doing it now. Others of you are like, hey, man, you guys are still a cult to me. Like, I get it, like Jeff said, right? Um, 
Well, he didn't say that. His mom said that. But yeah. Anyway, um, think about this. What would it look like for you to start with 2%? Good old milk, right? <laughs> Sometimes we start there instead of going all vitamin D on you. Um, start with 2% and work your way up over time. Have a plan to increase to that baseline of obedience. What would it look like for you? To genuinely believe that a generous life will never be empty. You know, someone who really believed this down to his core was a gentleman by the name of Ewing Kaufman. Ewing Kaufman, um, before he was, you know, a multimillionaire and really had a huge impact on Kansas City, I had an opportunity to tour the Kaufman Foundation earlier this summer and hear a little bit about his story. He was just a kid who read two books. Two books that he deeply believed the logic in, and they're both from a guy named Lloyd Douglas. One was Magnificent Obsession, and the other is Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal, I think. Yeah, Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal. Both of them, the logic in the center is that when you give of yourself above and beyond, you always get more in return, in some way, shape, or form, in terms of the, the totality of life. Now, Ewing uh, Kaufman wasn't like this staunch Christian, but he deeply believed the logic of these two books. And it shaped the way he then went about his business and his philanthropic efforts. And now we come to the Kaufman Foundation, right? You have the Kaufman Foundation that's been the catalyst for One Million Cups, which has been a huge conversation component for entrepreneurs across the nation, across the world, to spur on for greater job creation and capacity building for generosity and human dignity. You look at the Kaufman Foundation, how it grants grants to churches and nonprofits to do really dynamic work here in Kansas City. You look at the Kaufman School seeking to provide education for under-resourced uh, folks in our city. You look at, man, the Kaufman Stadium, <laughs> even his contribution to a really great cultural good called baseball and how he all, some of you are like, I don't know about that. Now, I know it's like, it's, it was great a couple years ago. And, uh, or a Kaufman Center for Performing Arts. A lot of these amenities that we actually enjoy because of his investment for the common good of the city. And we could go on and on. And you know why he did that? Because he deeply believed the logic of those two books. That when you give above and beyond, you will get way more than you'll ever get in return. I mean, you'll get way more in return. And you know what just, you know what just sits weird with me? Is we have a better story than those two fictional stories. <laughs> I, I know we don't have to go read Magnificent Obsession. That's a squeaker. Uh, we don't have to. I'm just a kid at heart, folks. Um, but at the core of the Christian faith, we have a God who had everything and he gave up everything. His own son that he might give us life and life abundant. Isn't that what we see? If you go to 2 Corinthians, just turn there with me because I want you to underline this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Praise God, Jesus didn't tithe his blood, but he gave it all, that we might know forgiveness and new life, that he. He leveraged the power of who he was so that we might be blessed and freed. And then to therefore go and do likewise. 
Imagine if we did. Think about that. I mean, because if you think about the history of the church, the church has done truly astounding things. Started hospitals, started the first orphanages, universities, and so many social goods. And of course, the unimaginable good of the proclamation of the news of the gospel of what God has done in Jesus through the salvation of the world that has internal impact. Imagine if we leaned into that. If 2.5% wasn't okay. You know, there was an interesting article on Relevant Magazine, and I promise I'm going to end here soon, titled, you know, what if Christians, what would happen if the church tithed? And specifically, um, thinking of the United States church, um, they said it would basically produce an additional $165 billion, with a B, dollars. That would mean $25 billion would go to global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in as few as five years would lead to great, great reduction. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fun- fully fund all overseas mission work, leaving another $100 billion to change the world. <laughs> now, and maybe for some of you that feels too big. But what about here? Sometimes I hear, you know, Christ's community... You guys are doing fine, and you guys, us, we're doing fine. We got five campuses. It doesn't need my money, and I, and I would say we don't necessarily need it, okay? Because God's going to do great, amazing things through those who've chosen to give. But really, our needs have never been bigger at the same time. Because we're not just one church; we're one church in five locations with growing needs, and it's not, it's not easy trying to navigate all these different needs. Some of you may know our Shawnee Mission campus is homeless. That meeting in a middle school, how many of you remember middle school? Um, there are certain barriers that come with that mobile missional structure and the setup and teardown that come with 6 a.m., early rising in the morning. We've got a video we're going to show at some point. I think it's even been pasted, posted on our Facebook page. And what about the needs here? Praise God, we've got a space that's about a half a block away for our kids over there, but we're growing, and our space is tight. Think about the ways in which your generosity could be a catalyst for this more permanent home in which we are continuing to pursue and coming closer to every day. And then, of course, there's the $900,000 that goes broadly to outreach. Many of you want your dollar to go as far as it possibly can to the right institutions. And there are a lot of great institutions that Christ Community doesn't partner with. So I'm not saying whatever institution we don't partner with isn't good. But the institutions that we have been able to partner with, we've done our due diligence to do assessment, to make sure their books are in order, and they're doing the absolute best work they can do in their strategic position when they're often under-resourced and overextended. And that money goes through us right into the, to the, to their, their budgets. What would it look like if we started giving with greater confidence to what Scripture calls us, that, the generous, that a generous life will never be empty? Do you believe that? So give. Give first. Give here. Give more. Because it's just a better way to live. And because we have the gospel, we get to be on mission with God in ways that we could never imagine. And who wants to be At that moment, like at the end of Schindler's List, where we're wondering, couldn't we have given more? 
Let's pray. God, help us to be faithful with the resources you've entrusted to us that are ultimately yours. May we not pursue the minimum, but constantly ask the question how we can maximize leaning into and trusting this paradox of generosity and so know the rich life you long to both give us a foretaste of now and will come to full culmination and the return of Jesus in the day that draws near. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've given us. May we be faithful in response. In Jesus' name, amen.